When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. As always, I'm your host, Anthony. For those of you who don't know, the title Electric Boogaloo was suggested to me by Amy M. So shout out to Amy M. Amy, just so you know, whenever you hear the title Electric Boogaloo, it's dedicated to you. For all of you who sent feedback this week, I am deeply appreciative The general consensus is that you like the scholarly folks on the pod and that you don't mind to hear a superfan here and there. So we'll just go ahead and keep that up. This week's guest definitely falls into the superfan category. It is my sister, Tara Jenkins. Now, I'm one of six kids, so which sibling is Tara? Tara is my most Game of Thronesy sister. If you think it's a little bit self-indulgent for me to have my sister on the podcast, yeah, that's kind of what it is. I really have fun talking with Tara. I hope you enjoy the experience along with us. Steve and I will be covering the finale for season two, so you get a full 25 minutes of Steve. No Aaron this week. Why? Well, because friend of the pod, Kim Renfro, is going to stop by and talk about some big news related to one George R.R. Martin. Without further ado, here is reporter extraordinaire Kim Renfro. Kim Renfro, we've got some big news, and I'll just, you're the reporter, let me just let you report. Oh, goodness gracious, sure. Uh, Reporting away. I'm I'm like, right, this is what I do. This is my job, (laughs) on the fly. Um, I I was literally like, wait, what what was the news? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, so we've we've had a pretty steady wave of... um, Game of Thrones, like universe related prequel news, I feel like in the last couple of months, which is awesome. But yesterday, the 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 exciting new tidbit was that there's a play being produced. I was going to ask you about that. I just saw a little bit about this, it's like a Broadway play that is something of a Game of Thrones prequel. Yes. So I, anyone is forgiven if they read headlines and moved on and thought that we were going to get like a literal Game of Thrones story adaptation to the screen. It is, like you said, more of a prequel. It's actually going to be all about the tourney of Harrenhal. So effectively what's happening is George R. R. Martin has teamed up with uh, a group of stage producers so it will be on broadway in the u.s it looks like it'll be in west end in the uk and it will appear in australia is the plans for now sometime in 2023 i think they're aiming for and the um, tourney at heron yeah. hall is like what 14 years before the Four, war of the I, five kings or something like that 
Yeah, I think maybe it's 14 in the books, 16 in the show, because they aged everyone up a, a tad in okay. the show. Uh-huh. But yeah, some somewhere in that range. It's basically, it's this great tournament, which has been alluded to throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. I think there were a handful of scenes probably in Game of Thrones that brought it up as well. Um, and then Martin really expanded upon it in the A World of Ice and Fire, sort of like encyclopedia textbook right. that came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that there's like a lot of like heavy uh, mythologizing. Is that a word? Mythologizing around around this event uh, because rumor has it in Westeros that this is the this is the the series of this is like the main event where Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark probably met for the first time and developed a relationship and decided to like upend both of their lives by running away together and And famously we get sort of a young young ned young jamie yeah this is the tournament where jamie i believed was um officially knighted into the Kingsguard for the first time, I believe. So there's like drama there because like Tywin Lannister didn't want Jamie joining the Kingsguard. He wanted Jamie to be his heir apparent. And so it's like, imagine like a teenage Jamie Lannister rebelling against Tywin in this very like public setting and taking on what he thinks is like this high honor of being a Kingsguard. And then the Mad King Ares basically turned around. And I think like, I... I believe that this is correct, like immediately kicks him back to King's Landing and is like, uh-huh. no, you can't compete in this tournament and sort of like humiliates him. Do we have any, do we know about any of the casting for any of this? No, no casting. And this is like early, I believe that it's probably still in pretty early stages sure. of development okay. where where the, the creative team was all reported upon by James Hibbard, who's now at the Hollywood Reporter, I'm sure. A lot of Game of Thrones folks know him from his work at Entertainment Weekly throughout like the the Game of Thrones series. But now James Hibbard's working at Hollywood Reporter. So that's where you can find like all the specific details. Um, I'm not a huge Broadway person, so forgive me for not like I don't I don't know all of like the deep connections of all these people. But from the theater folks that I've talked to, the producers, uh, Simon Painter and Tim Lawson, and award-winning playwright Duncan McMillan are all like a lot of people are kind of excited about this creative team. Well, and that's kind of the point. Yet. I mean, yeah. that's kind of brilliant. You're getting neither one of us are big Broadway aficionados, but here we are talking about a pre-production Broadway event. Mm-hmm. And so this is clearly meant to sort of bring in a wider audience. Yeah, James Hibbard made this point in his in the scoop that he wrote, but it it almost gives me a little bit of like what J.K. Rowling decided to do with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child right. a little bit, although yeah. that had so much more weight attached to it because it was a sequel story. Sure. Um, I think that this will have less opportunity to disappoint and more opportunity to excite because it's a prequel story. It's more like an extra treat of like the Game of Thrones universe that people Mm -hmm. can opt into as opposed to it feeling like it's something that you absolutely have to see. I feel like this will probably wind up being, yeah, a big draw for for the more like A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Mm -hmm. diehards, because George kind of alluded to in a statement that we're going to see the whole story. And so like, that's why I say like the sort of mythologizing that's around the, the tourney of Harrenhal, it will be pretty cool that, that this is going to come straight from George's story sense. Mm, and mm-hmm. we might actually find out some details about Rhaegar and Lyanna's really like relationship that we've never known before simply through watching this play. 
I mean, there's still a lot of speculation about, I mean, we, we are pretty certain that R plus L equals J, you know, just based on tons of evidence. Right. But it really still is something of a blind spot in the story. Right. And like the show, like, I think that through what uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the Game of Thrones showrunners have said, we can, we can very safely assume that Rhaegar, like that R plus L equals J is true. What we don't know is how many creative liberties they took Mm -hmm. in the show around explaining that relationship. We don't know if they'd actually got married or if that was just an invented show scene. We like, even through the show, we don't entirely know like what it is that they found so irresistible about one another. Like, it seems like they were both cool people, but like, was that enough to like, not that Robert's Rebellion was 100% born out of that relationship. I think that a lot of book readers have spent a lot of time discussing how like a lot of the um, the kingdom was pretty ready to take down the Mad King, regardless of, of Rhaegar and Lyanna's relationship or not. But uh, yeah, there are still a lot of questions about that relationship. Like, did he actually annul his marriage? Okay, a little bit of tinfoil here. Yeah, yeah. Love tinfoil. Uh, yeah, t- <laughs> little tinfoil. So I was just talking with my sister the other day about this, and mm-hmm. here's but w- here's what we don't know. We don't know how involved Liana was with Robert. It would be kind of interesting, right? If th- there's actually a legitimate love triangle, and Liana is not quite sure who John's father is, but she really wants to believe mm. that it's Rhaegar probably you know probably off the beaten path here but i do think that there's a a little bit more drama to be had if it's an actual love triangle rather than simply robert's delusional or something like that yeah i yeah i do think that most of the inference that we've gotten about how like i think in the books from ned's perspective we get like a glimpse of the idea that liana was not very enthusiastic about their betrothal because he was known to be sleeping around basically and like mm-hmm. had already sired a bastard or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and she, maybe and a she, few, <laughs> maybe a few. And she wasn't really, she, I think like there's something about Ned recalling that she was like concerned about that or that like that didn't really impress her. So yes, there's, there's a question about how exactly Liana felt because so far we ge- we genuinely have just had a bunch yeah. of men a bunch of men remembering her mm-hmm. and telling us like what her vibes were. I would famously love to- men famously men don't <laughs> remember women all that no. accurately. <laughs> no, especially not their little sisters, not their ex girlfriends. Uh-huh. Come on, mm-hmm. we need. I'm mean, like the the idea of like sitting in a theater and watching like a physical version of Lyanna Stark, like behaving exactly as Martin imagines she would have behaved as a teenager is very, that that is very alluring to me. Um, well, and this is also it. a little speculation on my part, but if it does really well, like we've seen a few Broadway shows that have done really well end up making it to Netflix in some capacity. Hmm. I yeah, or like the Hamilton, it. Hamilton yes. to Disney Plus. I would really love to see this sort of get a wider audience, but I suppose it has to do with how well it actually does. Right. I imagine that there will be some sort of exclusivity of it 
to the stage for a while simply because like, you know, that's how you sell the tickets. Um, it also said again, just to cite, uh, James Hibbard's work here. He, he noted in his report that HBO is not formally involved with the project at this point, but they Mm. have the option to invest in it at a later date. So it could become like an HBO max thing eventually down the line if they decide fingers to crossed version of it so speaking of hbo there's news about our old pal germ germ he's at it again he's at it again well i mean yes so also pretty recently we got the news that he had signed a five-year overall deal with hbo which i think was said to be in like the mid eight figure range and so like my brain had to like do a couple somersaults there i was like i think that that means somewhere in like the 50 million dollar range right so like paid out i mean i don't we don't know the pay structure basically george just got a significant amount of money promised to him for the next five years in exchange for all of his creative output belonging like that ip goes straight to hbo Hmm. first that's basically what this deal means it does not mean that he has to physically write anything for them um it doesn't like we don't know what the time commitment involved here Yeah, yeah so does this mean that they could create a series based in the ice and fire universe that does not uh, rely on anything George has written and does really and doesn't really consult with him on that. I think it would consult with him by nature of the deal. So the deal, it's not like I think. I, I mean, I'm not a, a full creative rights lawyer, so anyone out there in the universe can feel free to correct me on this. There's a difference between the sale of like your entire IP, mm-hmm. which wasn't which wasn't referenced in this. I don't think that George has like completely pledged his existing creative property over to HBO. What the overall deal means is that they have an exclusive with him um, to help develop and pitch show ideas. So we know that they already had several prequels in the works and that he had been working with some of the writers on like what those initial pilot stories would look like or what the characters that they would choose to go from so like this deal basically cements the fact that he will continue doing that yeah um and that it, it's really basically like an exclusivity to his creative output and so he can pitch this deal makes it so that he can pitch to them stories i guess it doesn't i don't mm. my understanding is it doesn't usually work in reverse so it's not like hbo will be coming to him with their own ideas it's more like okay now that we have this contract let's check in or like, again, we don't know what sort of time commitment he has pledged in along and alongside with this, but it basically just means that we won't be seeing a George R. R. Martin produces Amazon original show in three years, or like George R. R. Martin is making a Netflix show. It means that George R. R. Martin will be only um, executive producing HBO series for the next five years. And are we ready to sort of give the thumbs up on Dunkin' Egg? That was a little bit in question last time we talked. Yeah, that is so interesting to me. I mean, all of the prequel, all of the prequels that we know that are in development. I mean, House of the Dragon is still the only one for sure, for sure that we're seeing. It's currently filming. 
the other five, yeah, there's, there's five loose projects now that we know are in development. None of them have even made it to the pilot stage yet. So it is interesting to me that Duncan Egg is reported to be among those since he has been very, I don't, he's of all the, of all the potential ideas, I feel like Robert's Rebellion and Duncan Egg were the ones that he was saying wouldn't happen. And now we're getting the tourney of Hall, which isn't technically Robert's Rebellion. It's like the, the inciting incident mm-hmm. of Robert's Rebellion almost, because we also think that the rebellion was sort of being plotted at the tourney with like the gathering of all of these lords. Um, well, and the inciting incident, according to Robert, is is this, is Liana. Is Liana right? Right. So. And so Duncan Egg, I don't, I'm not, I I don't have any additional insight to that other than that a little question mark cartoon popped over my head when I saw that that was now <laughs> on the list. Because so I was like, maybe the... George changed his mind. I don't, so I don't we know, know House of the Dragon, but what are the other sort of working ideas here? So the other ideas that are uh, reportedly in development, one of them is uh, revolves around the original Queen Nymeria, the warrior Queen Nymeria. So that is like old, old. That's something like a thousand years before right. the events of yeah, Game like of Like the Throne. crossing of the Narrow Sea, mm-hmm. and the Doom of... Wait, is that the Doom of Valyria? No, she's the one who... Um, she's the Ro- Roinar queen. She's the founder of Dorne. That's she found, right. founded the kingdom of Dorne. That's so that right. would be a pretty like epic, sort of like conquering new worlds mm-hmm. type of story. The other one is um, might follow Corlys Valerion which I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that. I'm rough on my... It's been a while since I've had to speak it these names It sounded great to me. It sounded <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, and that that one's interesting because that character will be in House of the Dragon. Like, we already know that they've cast somebody in that role. Um, so this is like they're possibly doing a spinoff of an existing prequel like it's like the 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 prequel hasn't even come out yet, but they're already playing around with the idea of making mm-hmm. a spinoff show from that prequel series. Um, the other one is Flea Bottom. So like all that we know about it is that it would take place in Flea Bottom. So all maybe... we know about it is that it was it's going to be really gross. Like the whole thing's <laughs> so, going to be gross. So the disgusting. The sex will be gross. The food will be gross. <laughs> Yeah, it'll probably be filmed gross. in, in if, Dubrovnik. <laughs> if you're the kind of person that really likes gross. A bowl of brown. Anyways. We're going to finally learn how, the, how a bowl of brown is made. Ugh, I, I don't have high hopes. Kim, thank you so much for coming on. I know that everyone's going to appreciate you filling the tea for us. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Be sure to follow Kim on Twitter. That's at Kim Renfro. And now Tara Jenkins and I talk about chapter 19. That's John's third POV chapter. I've got a question that has nothing to do with this chapter. Okay. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Do you think that the hound is a virgin? Mm. No. I don't think so. I mean, there's so many like prostitutes like where he's at. And I mean, Tyrion Yeah, but he never Tyrion totally isn't. <laughs> well, we know so that for certain, could... right? Yes, yes. 
But yeah, I mean, I think he's just a private dude. I think he is. And I've got a, a very compelling theory, but it's pretty simple. Okay, let's hear it. He acts like a dude who is a virgin. Why? That's it. That's my whole theory. <laughs> That's your whole theory. All right. I uh I don't know. I I don't know if I agree, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. My feeling is that he's never given any indication. He, he's never been in love. He's never been loved. I would say that. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. I think it's a different yeah. issue. Okay. <laughs> but I <laughs> I think he would I just think it would really help. I I just think that if he could just let off a little steam, he'd be fine. Okay, moving on. It's a little, aw- <laughs> a little awkward. <laughs> uh, so here's why I asked you to do this chapter. My impression is that you like Jon Snow. He's one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, I and I don't think everyone does. I think that there are some people that think he's boring or some people that just think he's, uh, you know, like a one note or... Maybe he's annoying. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe people mm-hmm. just don't like Kit Harrington in general or whatever. But you're mm-hmm. not one of those people. You like Jon Snow. I do. And I could see why people would be, I don't know if I'd find him annoying, but I could see how they would think that he's not as dimensional. Yeah. Um, It's kind of like Ned Stark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they're so true to their honor, their code. You know, if he had a little more dark kind of to balance his light, it might be more complex and interesting. But him and Ned are just really pretty thoroughly good in a lot of ways. And if they make a mistake, it's just probably because of their honesty and their moral code. See, I think that that's that annoys people. I think that that basically they feel and it could be that the same people that are annoyed with Ned for not being more real politic. Totally. Are the same people that they're don't horrible like politicians. Horrible politicians. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're not conniving at all. Like they're straight shooters. Ned's like, oh, uh, I'm gonna go find all the bastards in front of everyone of, you know, the king and everyone's yeah. watching me do it. You know, he's just he's like a dog with a bone. He's just gonna go straight there. There's no like there's no mischief in him. But um, I do, I do like Jon Snow a lot because he is so self-sacrificing and to a fault, you know, probably. Yeah. But he is so earnest, and I think he sees people for truly who they are. I love that he loves all his siblings so much, and like with Arya, even though she wasn't, I guess he even told her like you pretty much shouldn't, you know, you should go act like a lady or go back to what and then and then he gets like a real deal sword made for her not like just a stick or like a wooden sword he gets a real sword made for her as a parting gift and i think he truly sees people and cares about them in that way so yeah i think you need a character like that that in this world you need a character that just doesn't have that kind of guile Mm -hmm. and just sees how well they can do Mm-hmm. by living by this code you almost need like a cardboard cutout of a good guy yeah so that everyone else can be contrasted by that 
Because if everyone is just acting like Littlefinger, the story's not all that interesting. Mm-hmm. You, you you really need someone that's playing by different rules. It reminds me of chess, like a chessboard. Like the pawns just move forward, <laughs> you know. Right. And I'm not saying he's a pawn. He's kind of like a pawn that turns like into a king or something, you know. Well, he is definitely yeah. He starts out as a pawn for sure. Yeah, he does, and he doesn't have a lot of moves. The pawn is going like one direction. Um, so right. anyway, I think he starts like that, and you kind of need that. You kind of need those people too. So, okay, here's the second reason why I wanted to have you on. So, you were the first person to introduce me to the R plus L equals J theory. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know why. I just, I think I looked it up. See, I was not, I was sort of reading the books. I was reading the books. I wasn't like, uh, you know, going on any fan forums or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you were like, so have you heard about R plus L equals J? And I was like, ah, yeah, I, I'm not great with math. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. Yeah, so but it totally blew my mind because I was not ready for that at all. I just kind of thought, I mean, Martin totally fooled me, and I probably would still be fooled if i didn't have the show or the internet you know if this if this book came out like in a different time period and i was just reading the mm-hmm. book that reveal would have totally worked on me yeah i mean do you do you think that martin told like the directors that that is what was going to happen or is it that was just their guess and then they ran with it at the end of the i the think series? he told them i think he told them okay. and i think that mm-hmm. it's all right, so here's I, I do have another theory about this that I've been kicking around. Okay. So here's what we know for sure. Mm-hmm. Or we think we know for sure. We know that Liana told Ned to keep a secret for her. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Ned seems to be keeping from everyone. Mm-hmm. And based on the show. We and a bunch of other clues. We have concluded that John is the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna, right? Mm-hmm. But everything, and that it was a love match, and it was right. like right. legal or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but everything in Martin's world in the books is a first-person limited point of view. And mm-hmm. the limited point of view suggests that either Leanna tells Ned what she really believes mm-hmm. or she's telling Ned a lie. So so we know that from... Mm, like she might have been duped and she it, thinks it's like a real like marriage, marriage well, or something. Maybe, well, maybe she doesn't know whether it's it's his baby or maybe it's, it's Robert Baratheon's baby. And but she's in love with Rhaegar, and so maybe she's sort of lying to herself. Maybe she wants to believe that that uh, John is Rhaegar's baby. So you think she's a floozy? Basically. I don't. I'm not saying she's a floozy. I'm just saying. Okay. That- well, she wasn't even married to Robert, and so to con- I don't think they consummated anything. It's possible. So think- it's possible that they did not. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We know that Robert is like madly in love with her. Yes, that's why I don't think that they've consummated. I mean, he's been with like so many like different women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's probably hung up on her so much because they haven't. You oh, know, okay, that, like, that makes sense. She's his intended. 
they haven't consummated it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they kissed. I don't know. But I, I don't think that John could be the bastard of Robert. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's compelling. The one thing that we know for certain is that he was not sired by the hound because the hound is a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Yeah, that's probably, probably true. All right, let me do a synopsis of the chapter. Mm -hmm. So here's my synopsis. Jon Snow is training at arms with the other recruits, assaulted by insults by Sir Alistair Thorne and... A couple clumsy blows by Gren. John is wrecking house. He's younger and smaller, but he's clearly superior with the sword. And after the training concludes, John reflects on his new life as he returns to the armory. Several recruits, including Gren, menace him and insult his mother. John smashes Totter's head as he's attacked by four of them. Donald Noy steps in, stops the fight, and advises John to learn how to make friends lest he get his throat cut in his sleep. John sulks. He sulks some more, and then he's visited by Tyrion. The two go to supper, where John learns that a raven has arrived with news of Bran. Lord Mormont gives him a scroll that says that Bran is alive, albeit crippled. John, jubilant with the news, accidentally makes a joke at Alistair Thorne's expense. Thorne cannot take a joke, so John's got himself a new enemy. Tara... Jenkins, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos? Okay. What part I thought was really interesting reading the rereading the chapter, he basically takes what I noticed is with Winterfell contrast to the wall, it he kind of personifies these places. They're not just, you know, this place they go to. They they have a feel to them. Yeah, they they're almost like sometimes like a family home is like another part of the family. It almost feels like another part of the family because it's like this place that's rooted. Right. So it's interesting because you think of Winterfell as like, oh, winter is coming. It's cold compared to like the south. And yet Winterfell, it talks about it having water running through the walls like veins, like a man. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's alive. He It's cold, but he's alive. The yeah, and it's hot life, water, you know? it's, or warm water, or whatever. And it's it is. hot, wa- yeah. hot, warm water, yeah. like veins. It's, he says it's like veins. So, you know, there's this feeling of aliveness, even though it's cold. There's family, there's community, and then the wall. It's more dead than alive. That's what it mm-hmm. felt like. Or it's cold, and the people are even colder. You know, it's mean. What it? I think Donald said. What did he say? He said it was cold, mean, and hard. And uh, yeah, and it's the coldest like John has ever been. There is no friendliness. It talks about the wall being massive and that there's actually 19 strongholds along the wall. Yeah. But only three are manned now. So 16 are decaying. And I think he says something like they're manned by ghosts. So there's just there's a feeling of the being less alive there. Yeah, no, um, I, I think you could say it like Winterfell is life and the wall is death. Yeah. But in contrast with the whole world, like they would say, Oh, Winterfell is so cold right. and they're sure, cold. Sure, and, sure. Yeah. But even further north, it's even more so. And 
the closer you get to the walkers, basically. Right. That's, so I just like the way he set that up, uh, the feel of the place. Yeah, it feels like a corpse. It feels like something that was once alive, you know, 19 castles were manned or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, yeah. you know, there's nothing there. There's nothing there for John. There's no, there's no life there. And moreover, these are supposed to be his his new family, right? But yeah, he, so he hates them. The, he hates mm-hmm. them. He, they, yeah. He's got nothing <laughs> yeah. there. They hate him. He hates them. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, so with John, I think maybe looking up to his uncle, he's like, yeah, I want to do this. I think he he definitely is feeling outcast, lonely. He he still has his la- like label as a bastard. And I think he had a fantasy that if he went there, he'd find brotherhood, you know, being a bastard wouldn't matter, that, you know, he could find a way to, like, distinguish himself and have this brotherhood, you know, kind of like the war buddy type thing. And I think he eventually did, like, later on, maybe. But yeah, I think his fantasy of this place and what it would mean to him and who he could be was totally, like, flipped over on its head. And he was just cold and lonely and hated everyone. (laughs) Well, and I think that his... I think that his entire life at Winterfell was a pretty charmed life. But he was always... He always felt like... As long as I'm here, I'm going to be reminded that I'm a bastard. Like, that's who I am here. I'm the bastard here. And Mm -hmm. even though he's got it pretty good at Winterfell, he just can't stand being that person anymore. So he thinks, Mm -hmm. well, the wall's going to be better. In reality, the wall is so much worse because not only is he called Mm -hmm. a bastard over and over. Yeah. But the people who are doing it absolutely hate him. And he's got no, like, he's a completely the bottom of the barrel so yeah he thinks that he's escaping a hard life for a life of where he can achieve and that might be Mm -hmm. true in a way but these first weeks at the wall this is the worst he's ever had it in his whole life i think and not only that i mean i think his conversation with donald was really important because he thought of himself as like the way you see him in the beginning of the book, he like takes himself out of like deserving a puppy or, you know, like the wolf puppies. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, like here you take them. And then he finds one for himself and and he's going to claim the one for himself. But yeah, he's self-sacrificing. And so when he's like, recast, he was recast as a bully, like in that narrative mm-hmm. from Donald, he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like he can't really handle that because like his belief of himself mm-hmm. and his narrative of himself is totally the opposite of bully. Um, he thought they were being bullies yeah. to him. So, I'll, I'll just read so this to, little part here. He, yeah, sure. Noise says, you're no lordling. Remember that. You're a snow, not a Stark. You're a bastard and a bully. A bully? John almost choked on the word. The accusation was so unjust, it took his breath away. They were the mm-hmm. ones who came after me, four of them. Four that you humiliated in the yard. Four who are probably afraid of you. I've watched you fight. It's not training with you. Put a good edge on your sword and they'd be dead meat. You know it, I know it, and they know it. You leave them nothing. You shame them. Does that make you proud? So he's like, Donald Noah is is a little bit like the guy who's like teaching John about white privilege for the first time. (laughs) Yeah, he's a little bit. Yeah. He's a little bit. You know, he's like, oh, "What are you talking about? Like, I'm the one. 
I'm the one who's suffering here. And then... Yes, his class privilege. That's right, because of his privilege. Yeah. And then Noy says, okay, let's take some inventory here about how they perceive you and how much Mm -hmm. better you've always had it than they did. So I think it is really important. I think that Mm -hmm. it kind of... It it really is kind of an eye-opening moment for him. At at least it ought to be. I I think he probably Mm -hmm. needs to learn this lesson a few more times, right? Yeah, and you know, something I like about John is he's teachable. Like, it's totally nowhere near, like, his thought process that he's a bully or that he has anything good, you know, like, that uh, he has any privilege. But, like, him talking to Tyrion, him talking to Donald, like, I think he takes things in. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of re... He mulls it over and it sticks with him until he can understand it. He's not the type of person to like be like, okay, I'm rejecting all of that. Right. Um, like, no, that's not how I see myself and you're just totally off base. He's going to think about it and really take it to heart. And I think that's that's why he can grow so much as a character in this series. Okay. Now, I think that there are a few little seeds in this chapter Okay. that are suggestive of the supernatural. Okay. I'm going to run these past you. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Okay, here's the first one. As he watched his uncle lead the horse into the tunnel, John had remembered the things that Tyrion Lannister told him on the King's Road, and in his mind's eye he saw Ben Stark lying dead, his blood red on the snow. The thought made him sick. What am I becoming? Afterward, he sought out Ghost in the loneliness of his cell and buried his face in his thick white fur. Okay, Mm-hmm. So on the surface, you could just say John had this like fleeting sort of daydream of Benjen dead in the snow, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe there's a hint here that he's got some kind of budding green sight because mm-hmm. Benjen does, po- you know, possibly, possibly dead in the snow. And then he asks, yeah. and then specifically, you know, before sort of embracing his wolf, he asks himself, what am I becoming? And I think that that no. is supposed oh, to be ahead. sort of like, yeah, you're becoming a warg. That's that's what you're becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, now, wargs mm-hmm. don't necessarily have green sight, but there's a couple other hints in this chapter, too. But what were you going to say? So do you remember, I think it's a Tyrion chapter where they're on the road to the wall. Yeah. And... Tyrion said something about he might like imagine bad things happening to people that he doesn't like or do you remember that? Oh yeah, he does say that. Like you must have like you're a bastard, so you must have, you know, fantasized about like your older brother, you know, something horrible happening to your older brother. Because of course uh, Tyrion's always imagined horrible things happening to Cersei and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so I think he is referring back to that uh-huh. yeah, of what yeah. am I becoming? And then also I think he feels guilty when he, I think his uncle's lost or something. Uh-huh. He like felt like maybe he did something to him. So I think that's where he takes it is like guilt because like I shouldn't imagine something horrible like that right. because of what Tyrion said. But yeah, it could be a budding green side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's multiple ways to interpret it. All right, here's the here's my second clue here. All right, so this is mm-hmm. a this is what he says to himself. He says, "Not my mother." 
John thought stubbornly. He knew nothing about his mother. Eddard Stark would not talk Mm. of her. Yet he dreamed of her at times. So often that he could almost see her face. In his dreams, she was beautiful and highborn, and her eyes were kind. Right now, again, could be daydreams Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, doesn't have to mean anything. But we happen, you know, we happen to know his mother. If if she was Lyanna Stark, she was highborn. Mm-hmm. And so and then the nice. question is, hmm, are you are you dreaming of the of your real mother, or are you just imagining your mother? All right, so that's number. Yeah, two. I mean, he could, he's probably a little psychic. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Is there more? Yeah, there's one more. Okay. He's looking up at the wall. And it says he could feel the great weight of ice pressing down on him as if it were about to topple. And somehow John knew Mm. that if it fell, the world fell with it. Yeah, but we saw that fall in the series. In the the, the show, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so. So, okay, so I think that if you take any one of those alone, it's like, yeah, maybe, come on. It's just, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. him thinking. It's just his imagination. But okay, so we something does happen to Benjen. We don't know if he really dies or not, mm-hmm. but we know that his mother was highborn, and somehow he knows that if that wall falls, and there's no inkling that mm-hmm. you know that there, he knows anything that's out really out there, but we know that if that wall falls, it kind of is the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. anyway, I like looking at those as kind of clues that John has something supernatural about him that well, relates I like that to green sight. I kept feeling like he sees very clearly. And for him to be a seer, like that right. makes sense to actually, for him to actually, you know, see things that he shouldn't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And that gives him more complexity too as a character. So yeah, I like that. I There's a little bit other sh- foreshadowing. I mean, it could just, this all could just be foreshadowing, right? It doesn't necessarily need to mm-hmm. speak to his character. Um, I like to read it that way, but here's some other foreshadowing. Uh, so just the title Lord Snow, mm-hmm. it, they, they're kind of calling him that mockingly, mm-hmm. but eventually he will be Lord Snow. Mm, so, like Lord Commander Yeah, Snow. he'll be the Lord Commander Jon mm-hmm. Snow. So he'll be Lord Snow yeah. at, at some point. So I think that there's something there that's a, maybe just a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, I could see that. Um, let me ask you a question that, uh, again, maybe relates to this chapter maybe not okay so do you remember cold hands Mm -mm. okay cold hands there's this guy that is riding an elk and he helps sam and gilly get to the like get away from the the white oh yeah okay and Uh get to get back to the wall Uh uh-huh and he's wearing like the night he's wearing like a night's watch uniform it's -hmm. like old and tattered He's wearing a scarf around his face, and mm-hmm. he's riding an elk, and his his hands are black, and they're super cold. And, it's, and it says yeah. that his eyes are black, too. All right. So in the mm-hmm. show, they kind of make that into Ben Jen Stark. Okay. In the book, yeah. in the book um, Martin says that cold hands is definitely not Ben Jen Stark, or at least oh, he said that in that. an interview or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the other clue about cold hands. At one point, Bran and Leaf are talking about cold hands, and they say, 
or Leaf says they killed him long ago. And I don't know who they is, but he's supposed to have been dead like for a long time. I I mean because Leaf is mm-hmm. Leaf is old. Yeah, for sure. Uh so you get the sense that this is like maybe maybe like a super super ancient member of the Night's Watch. And I wonder if you I wonder if you had any ideas about the the identity of Cold Hands. I don't know. I mean hearing you lay it out like that it kind of makes me think it could be like an one of the original starks but yeah some people I mean, say that the, it's the it's the night not the night king but the knights king mm. so this is a guy that sort of like millennia ago was a lord commander of the knights watch who declared himself king and then eventually they you know he was like put down or whatever but it doesn't say exactly what happened to him uh, but I mean, so so the interesting thing is, I mean, you think of like the dead that the White Walkers turn as kind of like zombies, yeah, kind of mindless. Right. They just kind of do the bidding of the White Walkers, which aren't they're not necessarily dead; they're other, right? They're other creatures, but they turn the dead and use them for their whatever they exactly. want. Um, right. Yeah. So, but it kind of shows that if there is this man who was killed years and years ago and he has a will of his own, you know, it kind of shows that like they're not, they don't necessarily have to be dominated and mindless. Well, here's the thing and, about and maybe that. Maybe it's just his strength of mind right. that can make him like that. But. So the clue here is that his eyes are black and they're not blue. So all of the whites, oh. all the whites that are sort of turned by the the others. Uh-huh. They become sort of thralls of the others, and they have these mm-hmm. blue eyes. Um, mm-hmm. And this this character, who knows? Maybe he was turned by someone else. He you know kept alive by someone else, and so he is. He's kind of like I don't know a Lady Stoneheart slash, you know I don't know some some sort of Walking Dead character, but not a thrall of the White Walker. Yeah, so it sounds like he could be like he became something other as well, mm-hmm. but he has a will of his own, and he might be almost like immortal. So I wanted right? to bring that up because I think that for a long time I wanted to think that Cold Hands was Benjen Stark, mm-hmm. and then I did I started doing a little bit of research on it, and I was like, no, I don't think it is. I think whoever Cold Hands is, I think he was sort of he became undead. A long, long, long time ago. And so mm-hmm. I don't think it could be. Yeah. Benjen. Well, and if Martin said it wasn't, then I guess. Martin can be pretty stubborn on this. Yeah. I think like, no, it's definitely not Benjen Stark. I think that he, I think at that point he feels like he doesn't want to change it. That's interesting though, because it makes you feel like he's going to show himself again then uh, later in the books, maybe this, the cold hands character. Oh. And and then that ma- makes you feel like Benjen is probably you know killed by the White Walkers and a zombie now. Like he maybe, or maybe yeah. he's still you know maybe he's I, who knows who knows. I I do still think kicking around somewhere. It's such a, yeah, it's <laughs> recurring theme or recurring echo in this first book where John's always like, "Where's Benjen? How come Benjen hasn't come back?" 
that I almost feel like Mm -hmm. as readers, we're trained to like wonder like, well, this is not going to be satisfying until we find out what happened to Ben Jen. So it does make me think that there's something, there's some future narrative that involves Ben Jen in some way. Yeah, Um, I agree. Okay, so notable introductions. Uh, we meet a lot of people for the first time. We meet uh, Gren and Darian and Pip and Halder. Is that Toad? To- is Halder Toad? Halder is Halder. Toad is, they call him Toad or Toader. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or Totter, I don't know. Uh, Sir Alistair Thorne, who's super important for John's narrative. We meet him for the first time. We hear the term Lord Snow for the first time. Uh, Donald mm-hmm. Donald Noy talked about. Uh, we hear about we hear about Hardin's Tower. That's where John sleeps, and we hear about the haunted forest. Mm-hmm. Book versus show differences. I think that the biggest difference here is that in the show, Tyrion's the one that kind of saves John from being beat up. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion comes in and like tells like, hey, you, you know, your brothers are the Night's Watch. They had it a lot worse than you. He has that whole conversation with Tyrion, which mm-hmm. I like because more Tyrion, the better. Right. Yeah. Um, but in the book, it's not Tyrion. It's it's Donald Noy. So. Oh, OK. I think this is like Tyrion and John have this is like their third conversation where he's basically teaching him how to be an outcast and do it well, you know, right. uh, that you, you can't let you can't let the name they give you wreck you. You have to claim it, and it loses its power to you know. Yeah, that's what Tyrion tells get under your skin. You know, make yeah. make it your armor. You know, take take the name, yeah. make it your armor, and they can't hurt you with it. And mm-hmm. and he clearly he has not learned this lesson yet. And and with uh, Arya, well, he also mentions that Arya is an outcast like him. Those are three of my favorite characters: Arya, Tyrion, and Jon, and they're all outcasts in some way. <laughs> and so um, it was interesting. He like he saw her as like himself, and and they they I guess they look like each other too, right? Yeah, they're both like really dark haired, pale, yeah, dark eyed. So yeah, he kind of puts them all in the same standing of like they're not quite what they should be okay so there's one thing more about this chapter that i thought was really interesting and i wanted to call it out so in in interviews martin has said that the seeds of this of the entire ice and fire world were planted when he was in northern england visiting hadrian's wall Mm. hadrian's Mm -hmm. wall marks kind of the outermost border of the roman empire and so it's like okay. right before you get to the, you know, what's now the Scottish border. But in back in, you know, it's 15 feet high. It's not like a giant wall of ice. Yeah. But it's a, it's a big wall. And Martin mm-hmm. went to Hadrian's Wall and he sat up there and he just he imagined himself like a, a Roman soldier visiting this outpost for the first time and looking over this wall and thinking this is the end of the world. And just you know, just having mm. sort of that revelatory experience where he imagined what it would be like to live in a world with an actual edge. And okay, mm-hmm. so with that in mind, here's let me read this little part of it. Okay. So he's looking at the wall for the first time, and it says, "You could see it from miles off, a pale blue line across the northern horizon, stretching away to the east 
and west and vanishing in the far distance, immense and unbroken. This is the end of the world, it seemed to say. So I just thought, here on page 183, just that little hint of the DNA that sort of started the entire story. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. And that's what I mean by like, it, it seems like the wall is a character in and of itself. You know, right. it's so important. It's the, such a big marker for them. And they've become so lax around it in that world. Like there used to be like thousands and thousands of men, you know, all these strongholds, you know, because they knew that like people beyond need to be kept at bay. Right. And now it's like no one wants to go to the wall. Like who in their right mind wants to go to the wall? And now there's only like. Yeah, because beyond know. that wall is death. It really represents sort of not just the end of the world, but the end of sort of life as we know it. Beyond that wall, who mm-hmm. knows what will happen? There's monsters. There's, you know, it's, it's, all, mm-hmm. it's all chaos up there. So mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Um, last, All right. So last question. In all the characters, in all the books, the character who you most feel like deep down inside, as opposed to the character that your friends and family think you are. Hmm. Um, well, you're my family, so you're going to fill that in <laughs> of what you think of me or I have to. Well, we can both do it. That. How about you first? Like who? Okay. Like what, what character do you feel like people from the outside think of when they think of you? I think as a as a kid, I could identify with Aria, yeah. you know, like kind of like a big imagination and like not necessarily wanting to fit in like a certain role, um, being kind of argumentative, <laughs> um, like, you know, just kind of wanting to do what felt good to me and not necessarily what was expected of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily feel like her today. Um being like a mom and uh yeah. But um yeah, who do I feel like? Um I mean, I could see basically I think that when I was younger I could see my friends and family seeing me like in that in that light. But yeah, I think um I could identify with why am I blanking on his name? Um uh John's friend. Samwell? Yeah, like a book guy, you know, who can maybe almost lives through books in a way. But I don't, I don't really know. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm that good with the, with the choosing. So like here, here would be my person. choice, sort of, okay. as sort of the outsider perspective. Um, Tyrion. You think I'm like Tyrion? I think okay. I, that's I would. He's my, my he he's my favorite. So I will much, I'd much rather be Tyrion <laughs> than well, Samwell. And he loves books too. Well, he's, so. Yeah, right. So he's he's bookish, <laughs> and he you know he's sort mm-hmm. of the youngest, and you know maybe uh, mistreated as as a youth. <laughs> yeah you know all about uh that uh (laughs) and uh and sort of you know kind of kind of how do i say this that doesn't sound mean uh kind of in command of every room that you walk in but (laughs) (laughs) and now steve and i cover valar morgulis 
This is the episode where Tyrion wakes up from getting slashed in the face and Theon gets conked on the head, and we get more of the Brienne and Jamie Road show. If you have any feedback for Steve or I, you can send that to book at baldmove.com. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, as we wrap up season two, I thought we'd begin with the pop quiz. Okay. All right, so here's the quiz. Sam doesn't get added to the undead thralls of the White Walkers because, A, the White Walkers were in a hurry. B, some White Walkers are just out for a stroll. Or C, there are no fat zombies. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd have to go with C, though. Uh, if the... Have you ever seen a fat zombie? I have never seen a fat zombie. No, I don't know that I have. Well, hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying I've never seen a fat zombie. Thing is, they already lumber around, so it seems like they're already like maybe they're fat on the inside. I bet you they're getting lots of exercise. They wander. They eat. I mean, let's be honest. They could go days without eating. They're intermittently fasting. <laughs> right. They should. Yeah. I mean. It's a, it's a, always a fascinating thing. I mean, that reminds me of the uh, the great Lost Boys line where it says, "Now you know what we are. Now you know what you are. You never grow old, Michael. You never die, but you must feed." And I'm like, well, "Why? I'm not gonna die." <laughs> because you have an insatiable desire to do it. But I mean, but you, but you could not. I mean, like, okay, let's say you're all right. Let's just imagine for a moment that these zombies want to feed. Why not Sam? Sam is a feast. Um, it's, maybe, maybe cowardice is, has an unappealing aroma. <laughs> I mean, Sam is even rejected by the undead. Yeah, that's pretty bad, actually. I mean, that is that is like that is shade from another round. Though. <laughs> it's like I they mean, leave him. They leave. I mean, it, uh, it's. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. That's a good one. Of any portrayal of cowardice I've ever seen, Sam Tarley is just just reeks of cowardice. Yeah. Well, Heather Heather said he's. She was like so matter of fact about. It. I'm like, why did they let him go? She's like, he's not a threat. Like, they only eat or attack that which is a threat. They're like, well, he might as well have been a baby. I'm like, but they like babies. They like babies. And yeah, they take the babies. Right. He's just a big baby. He's A, he's, a zombie he's should be with this baby. <laughs> I think its whole thing is just like, ah, that's too big of a baby. I don't care that. Or it could have been like, you know what? We'll double back for this one. He ain't going anywhere. <laughs> he is not going anywhere. That's yeah. right. All right. Let's do some inventory here. Magical inventory. Here we go. Okay, um, we have ice monsters. We have dragons. Yeah. We have warlocks that can multiply themselves. Right. But without variety. No, I know. They can put on different clothes. Yeah, they can finish each other's sentences and wonder, yeah. how many are we talking? I mean, they are, they're, they're called the warlocks of Karth, but we're basically watching Michael Keaton in multiplicity. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, he's, they're not exactly Zartan. They can't like change faces or anything. They're just no. However, and, and it's not like they have that like oh that's that face that's so common. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> no. They found one freaky look and and decided yeah. to run with it. 
Yeah, it's like, hey, look, what if it was a full-size great gazoo? We have we have faceless men now, and smoke babies, smoke babies, yeah, uh, green dreams, and we have not one but two types of magical fire. Okay, we've got the, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the green the exploding type, right, right, and we got the fire that you can like see visions in the flame or something, right. Yeah, so Stannis can see like a vision in the flame. Yeah, right, and it, like it was enough. Like this was that was one of those moments where I was like, "Is this a budget constraint thing, or am I supposed to not know what's in the fire?" They put all of their budget into finding quadruplets so they could pull <laughs> off that <laughs> warlocks of Karth. Right. Yeah, they found four ugly dudes. <laughs> so okay, so we had you know we talk about the penultimate episode with Ned's head, and here's mm-hmm. this big deal with you know. Tyrion gets cut in the face and we find out that he didn't die but then it's like it's like I feel like right now the theme with the show is look you're gonna have to endure Danny for nine episodes oh and then we're gonna remind you about the dragons and like then the dragons are gonna get a little bit more interesting like so I gotta wait <laughs> I gotta wait through nine episodes it's a slow burn and it's, oh, it's a slow think- burn yeah, I mean, but here's the thing about that. If dragons are just big lizards that breathe fire, they're going to become really uninteresting. And so it's almost like you have to start them off with this huge deficit. You know, you have to drag along the interest, I think. Well, yeah, and I get it. I mean, like, the thing is, is once the dragon is full grown, it's like, we've already heard the lore. It's sort of like, once you got a dragon, I mean, do what you like. So... You gotta, you know, th- this is like it's a coming of age tale of a woman and her dragons, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> well, and then, but the, it's like the, all of a sudden, no, they can breathe fire. And it's like, well, you, you, I figured that was gonna happen. Uh, that's that's why you have a dragon, right? I mean, okay, I mean, the smoke you, rings are adorable, but did you get the sense that Danny was sort of using her fire immunity card? Was she sort of immune to the the flames that were being shot out from behind her or was she just well positioned? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I had taken it as a position, but I mean, I, it would make sense that, you know, she can, she's made it very clear. She wants to remind everybody. She's got like this one move, you know, I lived through the fire. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't lock me out of car. I lived through fire. I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Who's, who says both Rockies? They say a lot of stuff. Danny is now free of, the whole Karth problem, right? Sure. Uh, she found out that she was betrayed by one of her handmaidens. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a pretty cold-blooded move to lock her away with Zaro yeah. inside of a big chamber. Yeah. You know, they didn't deserve some kind of punishment. That's a pretty brutal punishment. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I... you know that guy's going to eat that girl. That's all I could think about. That's all I could think about. I'm like, he is, I'm like, how long does he even He did wait? not get that big without eating some. Like, how long does he even wait to start eating her? You know, that's a thought. I, I'm thinking like 20 minutes. <laughs> like, even if it was like, like, they're still pillaging everything. They're just like taking then. And then she's like, oh, I thought of a really cool thing to tell him before I close the door. Let's go back. Like, God, you're eating her already? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, so in the book, Tyrion actually does lose his nose. Okay. That- so we have not talked about this um, so far, but 
at this point, I feel like we should talk about it. I do want to just tie a little bow on the whole Danny Dragon thing. Uh-huh. It's, you know, I sat through nine nine weeks of, of of her kind of doing her Queen Amidala thing. And and then, you know, and then there's the whole thing with Aquaman. And it's, you know, and then, and then she's like, and she roasts the warlock. And it's just like, that is it. It was just kind of like that whole wrap up was pretty, um, pretty quick, pretty anti- Un- unsatisfying. I, I felt it was say? unsatisfying. All right. I feel like I went through a lot, and then I'm like, and I, oh yeah, then the dragons cooked it. It's like, well, then, then there you go. Dragons are pretty great. <laughs> then... I don't think that you are unique. I think a lot of people felt that way about Danny. Now, the question is, in my sense, is that this next season is a good Danny season. Okay. In fact, there's a couple episodes with Danny that that are especially satisfying to me, but. I think that we've seen at least at least what the season did for her is we brought her from sort of utter helplessness to someone who will straight up murder a dude and lay waste to the greatest city that ever was or ever will be. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So I didn't mind that. I just felt like to me that should have closed it out. Like from again, maybe more from a production standpoint. Like that sure. should have been a little bit more like mm. get me into that because I felt like by the time she killed the warlock it was like well that was pretty easy alright let's talk about Tyrion Yep. Okay. So, so he has a nose but in the book he doesn't it, well here's what Tyrion looks like in the book and and you tell me whether this would have enhanced your enjoyment of Tyrion he's supposed to have platinum blonde hair Okay. supposed to have a very prominent brow He's supposed to have one black eye and one green eye. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's constantly in like having back pain or leg leg cramping. And then at the, the Battle of Blackwater, he loses a nose. Okay. All right. So that's basically the Tyrion that, uh, that we are imagining in the books. So how did that go over when, when I mean, I would imagine... You know, knowing the fandom as 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 I do a little bit, that yeah, just yeah. just the two eyes being the same color would be enough for be outraged. I think the general sense is that Dinklage is so great and yeah. delivers the lines with you know just perfectly that all is forgiven. Wow! So Dinklage finds a way. Dinklage finds a way, and let's be honest: would you rather have an actor that sort of looks the part? Or the one that sort of delivers the best lines. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm uh, I'm pro Dinklage. I'm all about it, and I don't have the books as a reference, right? So sure. I just know that, I just know that when you're looking forward to something, mm-hmm. you have all these visuals, and then when they don't manifest themselves the way that maybe you envisioned, yeah. then that becomes a hindrance for people to fully appreciate. So the nose thing seems like that would be that that seems important. Seems like the lack of nose though would would complicate the character. I mean, you've already got a guy who's you know. <laughs> quite literally looked down upon. Yeah. Uh, and then if you add another disfigurement, I mean, it, it just seems like, how is this guy ever going to get anybody to to be on his side when he's now got this problem too? Like a scar is like, mm, I mean, it's not great, but it's like, it's all right. They had discussed the possibility of doing some sort of prosthetic face for him. Mm. And uh, the decision was made was that... That's just 
That's just going to hinder Dinklage. You could keep him covered, right? Tyrion is tearing up the scenes. For the same reason that Jon Snow doesn't wear a hat up north. (laughs) Which is an Uh, issue for you. It it continues to be an issue for me. Uh, You want an actor to look somewhat watchable on the screen. Yeah, okay. And Dinklage is, uh, he's, he's a handsome man and he's very watchable. You don't mess, you don't mess with the nose. I uh, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm, I didn't feel like he needed to have less face. <laughs> um, but I'm just thinking from like, I understand what, like what that would do for the character to, to further complicate an already difficult to follow type character, especially if someone's like trying to be any, trying to assert any kind of leadership or whatever it, would be the more hideous he becomes the more challenging that becomes which would make any effort that he any success on his part to get people to follow him or or even join alongside him would be that much more impressive the scene where tywin enters the throne room it's just brilliant i mean everything from sort of the camera angle and you see the the shit hit the floor yeah that's that was awesome i mean that that was that that scene is just like that's it that's exactly that's why I love Game of Thrones. They knew what they were doing with that scene. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, that, and that is the the perfect Tywin entry. It's just like I'm here. I'm a big deal. I just so perfect. One. Just so perfect. Now you know we know from the books that he sort of arranged the whole thing. He told Joffrey to name him savior of the city, and and then he just walks in like this is this is nothing to me. Right. I've got 14 more of these that I have to do today and uh, says, thank you very curtly leaves uh, yeah. <laughs> on a horse, man. He just rides his horse. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm just trying to think I mean, that's like someone just, just cruising in on a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, so I love that scene. I love that. So, were you somewhat surprised at the uh, the Sansa being put aside scene? Um, Seemingly, that's a big development for her character. Yeah, I mean, I was it was it was a, I don't know if I was surprised. I was I was I was pretty moved by it. It was like, well, okay, this you know, speaking of complication, I mean, this could easily just move Sansa to just an asset, right? And from an asset perspective, you could kind of treat her however you want. So from a safety perspective, that becomes unnerving, you know, and we'd already sort of seen Marjorie kind of give, you know, tip her hand what she wants and, and, uh, you know, MC Littlefinger is all about doing whatever he can to, 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 to move his, his own agenda along. Yeah. Littlefinger seems to be doing pretty well. He gets Harrenhal, right? He gets Harrenhal, which has just seen out. better days. It's seen better days. It's seen better days. It's a fixer upper. Yeah. <laughs> By <And> low. <laughs> right. And he gets all the lands around it forever, mm-hmm. forever. So that's kind of a big deal. In addition to that, he's been able to get on the good side of both the Lannisters and the Tyrells. And for some reason, he's just, he can't keep his eyes and personage off Sansa. He right. just, that's what he, he like, yeah, I got a castle. That's great. Got lands. That's great. Made this alliance. But what I really care about is being a little bit creepy in a conversation with Sansa. Just, I need that. That's what I need in my day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to tell with Littlefinger. Is this, is, 
this ultimately a bargaining chip for him and his relationship with Lady Catelyn? Or is this a Lady Catelyn proxy? I often wondered that. I often wondered that. I feel like I never really knew whether or not he was sort of wanting to get revenge because, you know, back back in the day, he he pursued Catelyn and uh, Ned's brother cut him from chin to navel or whatever. Right. So maybe he wants revenge for that. Or maybe he's just greedy and he thinks, you know, this is an asset. Or maybe he's thinking, at the end of the day, I'm going to get back with Catelyn. I'm going to make sure her husband dies. I'm going to get on the good graces of her daughter. And eventually, I'm going to win this woman that I love. No, or he's uh, just, just horn horn. Or <laughs> he's just really creepy. Uh, now, in the book, he never gets a point of view chapter, and Varys never gets a point of view chapter. And George said that if he ever gave either of those two characters a point of view chapter, it would reveal too much about the larger machinations of the plot. Interesting. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, more little finger to come for sure. Um, Rob marries Talisa. Yeah, certainly does. Now, and I think that's a combo thing, right? I mean, he obviously is is smitten, but I think he's also very much just like he's really killing the mother. You know, it's almost like killing two birds with one stone. He gets right. to marry the woman he loves, and he gets to really upset his mom. Right? Like if she gives some degree of blessing, he may not play it the same way, in my opinion. Doesn't mean they won't be together, but I don't know that he does that kind of a move. And then we've got Brienne and Jamie. Little journey. She kind of rocks the house. And, and he's uh, impre- I think he's somewhat impressed with I think so too. I, I kind of took it that that he was like, all right, okay. Like yeah. he wanted to see that happen, right? Like I think he wanted to see who he was. I mean, I think it helps, right? Like if you know you're you're a badass. You kind of want to feel like at least the person that's leading you around is at least in a badass category. It doesn't have to be on par with you. Let's do your uh, sort of the Brienne meter. Is it getting a little hotter, getting a little cooler, about the same? Uh, it's probably warmish. Getting warmer. All right. Yeah, it get a little warmer. I mean, I, but again, I mean, I think I think Jamie goes a long way for that. You know, the duo concept really goes. Yeah, on. Jamie's part of the duo. You're going to. I mean, you're not watching Lethal Weapon if one of those two is not in it, right? You're not watching Murtaugh the movie. <laughs> Pe- you don't think Pesci and Glover would have made a good duo? <laughs> was it, weren't they in uh, Gone Fishing? They were in Gone Fishing. <laughs> Theon is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Theon, it's almost like you just saw this this rousing speech that Tyrion gave to his men. Right. And, you know, against all odds, they were able to hold back the troops. Theon starts that speech, and you're thinking, there's no way these guys are following them. No, I know. And then they start chanting with him, and you're thinking, well, these guys are crazy enough just to, just you know, maybe they're crazy enough to go out there and just <laughs> die. And then it just ends very abruptly for him. Yeah, that's it. That's it for Theon. <laughs> So, all right. So, yeah, Theon's short tenure as the Prince of Winterfell ends. What do you think? Ha- what's what's going to happen to Theon? That part, I was a little bit like, are they still? Is there a threat? Do they? Or did where did they go? So earlier in in the season, Lord Bolton suggested to Rob that he could have his bastard go right yeah, take him, Ramsay and then Stone. Rob said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." 
And then Rob said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to allow free passage for any oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. As long as they deliver Theon to me. Gotcha. Okay. So that that's right. Now that so makes sense. when I first watched this, I thought, oh, they're just going to do what they did with Stannis. And the, the men are just going to take him back home. Uh, you know, incapacitate him, put him in a boat and bring him back. So he doesn't have to be a coward. But little did I know that, you know, there's actually a, a ransom on his head. Gotcha. Because I missed that the first time. Okay. So um, in the same way that uh, Bran loses a father figure in season one, he loses Maester Lewin in yeah. this episode. You kind of called this. You said, look, you're, you know, you're just waiting to see who who's going to die. Right. And it was so, it was an abrupt one too. Yeah, it just kind of happened. It wasn't even, he wasn't, all he was doing was objecting to Thayon getting conked on the head. Right. (laughs) That's That's it. That's it for you. Now, the death, the key death could very easily have been Samuel Tarly. Right. But Maester Lewin, I guess that kind of increases Bran's predicament that Maester Lewin is gone he right. doesn't have ned he doesn't have roderick he doesn't have he's Roger got a, a fancy odor. <laughs> yeah he's got odor <laughs> so he loses maester lewin and the plan is that he's gonna sneak up to the wall and maybe john snow will take care of him up there all right let's talk about john john ends up killing corin yeah seemingly this is all part of corin's big plan to ingratiate john to the wildlings right I mean, I'm intrigued because it's like that was Corrin's plan, and it assumes John is a part of it. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case. I kind of yeah, feel like I feel like at, at best, John is in between. He's. A, he's I think a, that if I was Corrin, I would say I would let's say I'm ready to go all in on this strategy. I maybe want to have one more conversation that just says. All okay, right, now look. <laughs> now look, you're gonna kill me, but the only way this works is if you go assassinate the king beyond the wall. Right, He's with me. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna die. I just need. I just give me a. I, mean, give, I need you to see this through. Just give me a wink. <laughs> like if right before you kill me, if you say take that bugger, then I know that we cool and you're gonna do this. If you don't use the catchphrase. <laughs> I mean, these men of the Night's Watch, they're they are serious dudes. They're serious dudes. They also, I think they've been in the cold a little too long. Yeah, I suppose so. All right, what else? Uh, uh, Jack and change faces. Okay, good. All right, so let me ask you this question. If you could either have the ability to grow back a limb... Or change your face at will. Which would you choose? Ooh, uh, I, I think I'd change the face. Well, you already are able to grow back parts of your body. That's true. Famously, you grew back a nipple. Which, I, yeah. which nipple was it again? Uh, uh, the left one. Left? No, the right. The right one. The right nipple. Yeah, your left. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it as the left nipple. <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk to you about the number 19. I puzzled over the symbolic value of this number for a few years now, 
And because I'm always suspicious of numerology, I usually end up dismissing it. But when I realized that Jon Snow's first appearance at the Wall was in Chapter 19, I revisited my previous musings. A quick disclaimer, I am not convinced of anything that I'm about to present, but for some reason I can't get it out of my head. So here goes. I first noticed the number repeated between symbolic ice and fire elements. Relative to ice, there are 19 strongholds along the wall. Relative to fire, there are 19 dragon skulls in the Red Keep. That spurred my initial interest, and I started looking for the number elsewhere. A few online forums have noticed that, for example, Daenerys is the 19th member of the Targaryen dynasty to claim the Iron Throne of Westeros. Craster has 19 wives. Ygritte says, you know nothing, Jon Snow, 19 times. And a few different characters are age 19. There's just not enough here to create a symbolic value for the number internally within Martin's worlds. I was talking about this with David Peterson, and he suggested that it's sort of a generic number. It sounds like almost 20, in other words. It also sounds random enough because it's not even. I think he might be right. Maybe George is just drawn to the number, or maybe he doesn't think much about which numbers he's applying where. So, another caution here. If you do an online search for number symbolism, you can easily come up with 19 different interpretations. But try this on for size. There are a few different ancient calendars that used what we now call the metonic cycle. This is just an alternative way to measure the passing of time, and as we know in Martin's world, the seasons are inexplicably magical. We also know that Martin likes to borrow from ancient belief systems, so maybe he's consciously borrowing from Greek or Hebrew ideas about the measuring of the seasons. If so, maybe 19 is borrowed from the metonic cycle. What is this? Okay, well, the metonic cycle is a period of approximately 19 years. After about 19 years, the phases of the moon reoccur on the same day of the year. In other words, it takes about 19 years for the days and the moon phases to line up again. So what should we do with this information? What would be gained if indeed 19 is symbolic? Well, it relates to the moon, and John is sort of a werewolf. Mm, yeah, not very compelling. This is where I usually dismiss the theory. But I had a thought the other day that got me interested again. There are about 17 years between Robert's Rebellion and the War of the Five Kings. That means that as we leave the story at the end of Dance, there have been about 18 years since a Targaryen sat on the Iron Throne. Could it be that in about 19 years, a full metonic cycle, that the dynasty will renew itself? Could we see a Targaryen like Jon or Danny or both retake King's Landing 19 years later? I don't know. Tell me what you think. I might be chasing my own tail. Book at baldmove.com. And that's all for this one.